what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. When I texted some of my buddies, like my jazz-loving buddies, my jazz cat friends, that I was going to talk to Christian McBride, they were really excited. So I was a little intimidated. But when he came in, one of the greatest living jazz musicians of our time, he was kind, he was warm, and he told amazing stories, in particular about James Brown, Christian McBride, coming up. Plus, the Juno Awards are coming up. If you don't know, the Juno Awards in Canada, they're like our... Grammys. So over the next little while, you're going to hear some of the nominees for Songwriter of the Year, starting with Calgary's own TikTok sensation, Tate McRae, who will introduce you to what could end up being the Song of the Year in Canada. That's coming up. My name is Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So yeah, one of the greatest living jazz musicians, specifically one of the greatest living jazz bassists. If you're going to talk to someone like that, we should probably start out with some music. Christian McBride and Prime from his album of the same name. Christian McBride is an eight-time Grammy-winning bassist who has played with just about everyone. I got, a, I got a short list here of who he's played with. Shaka Khan, Isaac Hayes, Sting, Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, Celine Dion, The Roots. And most importantly, because it comes up pretty early in our conversation, he played with James Brown. Christian is this rare thing in my experience in that he is a tremendously gifted jazz musician that can also talk about jazz in a way that brings you in. If you're the kind of person who finds jazz inaccessible, it's like not really your thing or you think it's not for you, Christian has a way of making you appreciate it and understand it. And he does that in our interview as well. Christian was in Canada performing his The Movement Revisited album. And we invited him into our studio and we sat at the table right next to one another. And we just started listening to music. Here's my conversation with Christian McBride. So that's The Temptations and Papa Was a Rolling Stone. The first song you learned on bass. Is that right? You're good. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right about that, right? That's correct. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, when I was nine years old, I got my first electric bass. Uh, My mother brought me my first electric bass. And um, uh, my parents had already split up by then. But my father is a, a great, great bassist. And so he came over and gave me uh, my first, like my first bass lesson, and uh, that was the song I learned how to play. I mean, pretty simple song to learn how yeah, to play. Yeah, but one thing I learned early is that uh, it's not about the notes; it's about the groove. It's about where you put it. Right. You know. Right. So the 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 notes are one thing, but placing them 
where they feel correct. Yeah, you know that was that was the main thing. And it wasn't just your dad, wasn't? Don't you come from a family of bass players? Yes, and my great uncle, he also plays the bass as well. I love the way you describe him. Where you said like he was a caricature of a jazz bass player. Oh, he's he's the man. He, he he's still the man. Is he still around? <laughs> he's still around. What was his name? Howard Cooper. What and how, when you say he is like the caricature of a jazz bass player, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, uh, he, he he always had a cigarette, and uh, he would always have like a a, a beret, wire rim <laughs> glasses, you know, goatee. Yeah. Uh, everybody is cat or baby, right? You know, uh, always spoken slang slash jazz terminology. And uh, when he would play records for me, he would always sing along uh, or, or play air bass. You know, so just watching him listen to music was a wonderful, wonderful experience. So, with a family full of bass players, why did you start out on trombone? Well, I didn't start out on trombone. When I, I, I started playing the electric bass yeah. when I was nine. And then uh, my mother saw that I was getting serious about this. Yeah. And she decided that, we, well, you need to go to a school that has a good music program. Yeah. Now, by that time, I had already fallen deeply in love with the music of James Brown. Yeah. And most of my favorite moments on a lot of James Brown's records were the trombone solos of Fred Wesley. Yeah. And so when it was time to pick an instrument to play in the orchestra, instead of picking the double bass, I picked the trombone. And uh, the brass instructor heard me play the trombone, and he basically said, you shouldn't do this. <laughs> he didn't say that, but that's I was reading in between the lines. Yeah. He said, you know, we really could use a, a bass player in the orchestra. Yeah. But I don't, I don't want to play bass. He's like... You should you should try the bass. Give me, give me the trombone. Right. <laughs> so, best decision anyone has ever made for me in my life. Yeah, and you pick up the um, what's the story? You, you pick up the acoustic bass, like the upright bass, mm -hmm. and you go like, oh, actually, this is kind of the same as the electric yes, bass. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned James Brown. I want to play something else. Okay. Here he is, James Soul Brother Brown. Hey, 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 you you are very good. Oh come on. Man, there's really been nothing like it since, has there? Not really. Like, that's just occurring to me as I'm listening to you right now. <laughs> People have tried, but it, not, not the same effect. Because it's melodic, and it's punchy, and it's poppy, but it's also out there. Well, I mean, the thing about James Brown's music, like, w one of my favorite quotes of his is that uh, every instrument is a drum to him. Like, once James Brown's music became you know, just singular. Yeah. Everybody was, was playing rhythm. The guitar is playing rhythm. Bass was playing rhythm. Drums were playing rhythm. Horns were playing rhythm. Uh, the background singers were, were rhythmic, you yeah. know? So it was just like uh rhythm all around, you know, if, if whoever laid out, there was some rhythm going to keep you dancing. I was reading this interview with you and you said something that caught me. You said that James Brown's music for you when you were young was like armor. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Big time. Uh, well, no one ever believes it, but I got bullied quite a bit when yeah. I was a kid. Okay. You know, and uh, I was always physically bigger than a lot of my friends. And, you know, I liked this old music. You know, my mother raised me on Motown and the Temptations. That music was not the music of, of my generation. You know, uh, our generation 
you know, I, I pretty much, we grew up on disco. Yeah. So I was always 10 years behind yeah. with the music that I liked yeah. with all my friends. And so, you know, because of my size, I, you know, the music that I liked, I got teased a lot. And every time I heard James Brown, I, I was like, I'm, I'm protected. I'm good. No, we need it so proud. We got the it so proud. So for me, the Sony Walkman was like the greatest invention ever. Because <laughs> I could put James Brown on my headphones and just walk to school and be like, I'm bulletproof. No one can touch him. No one can touch me. I'd be afraid of meeting him, though. Like I, some of my heroes, like some of my heroes I've got to meet and they've been great. Some of my heroes I'm glad I didn't get to meet. Like like one of my favorite artists is Bill Monroe, like the founder of Bluegrass sure. Music. Sure. But like, probably, I, I'm kind of glad I didn't ever meet him because I'm sure it would have been a tough right, situation. Right. I, I mean, everything I know about James Brown, I might feel the same way. How was he when you met him first? Oh, I, I, I knew it was going to be uh, an escapade, shall we say? You know? <laughs> uh, I had done all my research on on James Brown, and uh, I knew that he he was uh, a lot. Yeah, you know, um, but. I so deeply admired him. I was willing to withstand whatever turbulence was coming, and boy, was there. Yeah, you know, it, you know, started out cool. Where were where, where were you? Like, tell me, tell me where you were when you first met him. Well, I, I, I first, you know, there's the kind of meet where you just, you know, you're a kid and you meet him backstage and you shake his hand. Hey, how are you, and, sir? And, and you know, he gives you an autograph. Uh, so that happened when I was 11. Yeah. Uh, and then I met him backstage at the Apollo Theater in 1994 uh, when he was making what was to be his final live album at the Apollo. And uh, by that time, I knew a number of his band members. He didn't quite know who I was yet. But we had a little tiny bit of a conversation. It was just sort of like a another version of when I met him at eleven, age eleven. The following year, this was the summer of '95. I was on tour with this Verve Records All Star Package. You know, it was like Roy Hargrove, Jimmy Smith, Nicholas Payton, Mark Whitfield, all of us on tour together. Cool. And uh, James Brown was on that festival, and we were all staying at the same hotel. By this time, my first album, Getting To It, had been released. I pretty much knew everyone in his circle but him at this point. So when we met in the lobby at the Vienna Hilton, I'll never forget it, that's when he finally put two and two together. You know, uh, So then we actually had a conversation about music, and it w- that was really a fun conversation. So over the next year or two, I'm thinking, well, let me take advantage of this. Now he knows who I am. You know, maybe we can, I'm so naive, maybe we can collaborate on the project together, you know. Uh, So I knew that he had done a jazz album called Soul on Top with Louis Belson's big band. When was that? 1969. Ain't good? Uh, Hell yeah. And so... I thought maybe we could recreate that album. Yeah. You know, my big band and him. Yeah. And uh, he sounds so impressed. He, the w- number one, that I knew the album. 
two that he knew that that I knew that he loved jazz and that he he understood the aesthetics of jazz, you know. And then somewhere along the way, uh, there was a crash and burn. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> Well, he, um, I, two of my very closest friends in James Brown circle uh, was the great Martha High, who sang background with him for many, many years, yeah. and his drummer, Robert Thompson, who's known as Mousy. Mousy was kind of the guy that got me in the James Brown circle. Unbelievable drummer, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Incredible. And so I was super tight with the two of them. Yeah. And uh, James Brown invited me to his uh, Christmas party. This was in uh, 96. And uh, in the interim, not only did he invite me to his Christmas party, he invited me to perform at his birthday bash, which was maybe six months after the Christmas party. So I'm now like on James Brown's calendar. I'm on his Christmas list, you know. Merry Christmas! Happy New Year! I love you! So I go, I fly to Augusta and uh, go to this party. And while I'm at the party, I'm sitting at this table with Martha and Mousy and Danny Ray, the, the real, you know, level A James Brown crew. Yeah. And um, the party started wonderfully. And by the end of the night, his whole vibe had just done a, he'd just taken a 180. What happened? So at the beginning of the party, it was just like, Mr. McBride, it's great to see you, son. I told all my friends, Chris McBride coming to the party. Y'all know. Y'all don't know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he told me how he was going to sing a jazz tune with the house band. He's like, son, I ain't sang no jazz in a long time. You, you, you sparked it back up in me, son. You know. And then uh, by the end of the night, you know, everybody was taking pictures on the way out. And um, I said, Mr. Mr. Brown, can we get a picture before I go? He's like, uh, so me, Martha High, and, and Mr. Brown pose for a photo. And James Brown's like, I see what you're doing, son. You don't fool me. I'm hip to you. You don't think I see it, but I see it. What? I was like, excuse me? I thought he was being funny. Yeah. You know? He said, you trying to steal my people from me. You're trying to steal Miss Hyde from me. I see you sitting over there with all my people. And again, I thought he was joking. Yeah. You know, I was like, steal? Like, what do you mean steal? Yeah. And so he, I remember the specific quote was, you try to take them for your own organization. And I was thinking, <laughs> wow. Wow. This, this man's a little paranoid. Yeah, a little bit. You know? And I was like, Mr. Brown, no, 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 no. I, I have I have no use for Mousy or Miss High or Mr. Ray. Uh, we, you know, we're just friends. He's like, nah, son. I got I got my eye on you. <laughs> and then over the next several months, you know, Mousy would call me up. He's like, hey, man. You know, Brown was talking about you at rehearsal today. Now, this was mixed feelings because, wow, I'm so much in James Brown's head now that he's talking about me at rehearsal. Yeah. And, you know, Mousy told me one time, like, uh, they started rehearsing some jazz tune. And James Brown looked at the band like, y'all ain't going to get, y'all ain't going to learn this from no McBride. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were in his head, man. Yeah, Mousy, Mousy told me that... Uh, Mr. Brown said one time, uh, 
said, yeah, Mousy, I, I know you in touch with McBride. <laughs> you tell him all my secrets, ain't you? <laughs> and I was like, wow. He was paranoid. He was paranoid. You know? I was like, I said, but Mousy, why, why is he paranoid? What does he think I'm going to do? You know? Yeah. I'm just a jazz dude, you yeah. know, who wants to, I'm dying to play with him one day. Yeah. You know? And so finally, I just, I started to hang back. Yeah. Because it was just getting too, you know, like one day I called him on the phone because he never did answer my question about Soul on Top. Yeah. And so uh, I called him on the phone one day and uh, unfortunately he was in his office that day. <laughs> and uh, I had the equivalent of, uh, a cannonball being shot through my body. <laughs> he yelled at you. He oh, son, I ain't working with you. In fact, you can't even play. Oh, wow. I mean, he just, it, it just, it got, it got That's really hard bad. for you, man. This is your hero. It was, you know, and even though I knew that that was a potentiality, if that's a word, yeah, um, that it still didn't feel great. When it happened, yeah. you know, because I'd heard from the best musicians that ever played with James Brown, Bootsy Collins, Maceo Parker, Fred Wesley, Jabbo Starks. He yelled at them on the regular, yeah. you know, told them they had no talent. I don't need you. All that kind of <laughs> stuff, you know. So I thought, what's little old me? Of course, at some point, he's going to do that to me. Yeah. You know, and he did. Yeah. Cool. And uh, it didn't feel good. It still hurt. It still hurt. Yeah. But then somewhere along the way, you know, like I said, let me fall back. I'm leaving his circle, you know. Uh, in 2006, uh, I'm sorry, 2005, I was named creative chair uh, for jazz with the L.A. Philharmonic. So I, I curated 12 concerts per season, eight at the Hollywood Bowl, four at Walt Disney Concert Hall. So I thought, hmm, do I even dare uh, resurrect that old idea yeah. of James Brown and the Christian McBride big band playing solo on top? I said, well, it's now or never. Yeah. So I called his manager. Much to my shock, uh, Charles Bobbitt was his name. He he passed away. He said, oh, man, Mr. Brown, he, he told me that, uh, you know, I spoke to him, and he said he loved to do it. He said he's very proud of you. He's been keeping his eye on your career all these years. And, yeah, he's he's down to do it. Man, I, I was – I was frozen in my tracks for days because I didn't think it would that it would be that quick of a yes. Yeah. So now you, know? you got to do it. And uh, but, you know, the fact that he was just like, you know, when I finally saw him, uh, he came to New York and I went to go see him. And, uh, you know, he's like, son, I'm proud of you. I turned out you turned out to be a big man in, in the music business, oh, wow. you know. And uh, so he was the nicest man in the world. How, how did you feel when you actually got to play the instrument on stage with him? That was, uh, that's one of those feelings you'll never, you'll never forget. You know, it, it was the rehearsal. Uh, when we did the first rehearsal at center staging in Burbank, you know, it was his band and my big band facing each other, you know, and, uh, there's James Brown in the middle looking at my band and, and, and we're rehearsing. And uh, when we played that first note and he came in singing. For once in my life, I have no one to see me like it needed me so long. I was the MD, so I had to hold it. I had to keep it together. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so the whole time I was like, 
Breathe deep. Breathe deep. Concentrate. Concentrate. It's 12 bar blues. You'll be okay. <laughs> you know. But I was, man, I was just like, I am finally playing with J.S. Brown. Can't oh, believe wow. it. Once in my life, I want that sorrow hurt me. Not like it did before. But once I and he, he passed on that long He passed that. on three months, three and a half months after that concert. So right at the end of his life, he finally got to... And we had been talking about doing it in New York. So we were going to do it again yeah. sometime in uh, 2008. Yeah. We, you know, we, we were just kind of going through our options. I'm glad you got to do that, man. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad, you, I'm glad the story doesn't end with James Brown yelling at you. Oh, no, just the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I thought it was going to end with, so I played with him and I got fined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. It, that that concert at the Hollywood Bowl was all fun. How oh, beautiful. Yeah. Along with a mighty Christian McBride and a big beautiful band. Give the band a big round of applause. Need a thing. Hit. You need a thing. Let's let's go to some of Christian's music. Let's go to the music in in nine. Take a listen to this. From '94, that's my guest, Christian McBride, with the title track to his album "Get Into It." Speaking of James Brown, <laughs> oh yeah, that that uh, that groove is from an old James Brown song called "Get It Together." That day he yelled at me on the phone, he referenced that song. Oh, he was unhappy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, see, you stole that song from me. You know, I was like, no, 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 Mr. Brown, I gave you credit for that. You know, look look at the liner notes. You know, it's, oh, okay. You know. So. <laughs> <laughs> what What made you, I, I mean, this is an odd question, but can you, can you define, imagine if I say, can you define jazz? Can you, we'd be here all day. Can you define though, because like, here, here's what I find interesting about you is that you do, you come from funk. Mm-hmm. And you went to school with the Roots. You went to the Creative High School with uh, Amir and and Tariq from and, and Black Thought. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tariq, from, yeah. Uh, from from the Roots. You could have played any kind of genre of music, and you mm-hmm. have, but you could mm-hmm. have. Can you tell me what it is about jazz that got you? What it is about jazz? Because it's a, it's a, not a path that every musician of your level right. takes. You know, I first of all, it was the most difficult. And I love the challenge in finding a way to play it and play it well. And uh, I also have to acknowledge, like, my, my best friend throughout high school was the late, great Joey DeFrancesco. And Joey was playing professional gigs at age nine, you know, so he's, he was a true child prodigy. You know, yeah. his, his feet could barely touch the organ, and but yet here he is, people are paying to see him play yeah. in clubs around Philly. And so, here I am going to school every day with Joey and, you know, he's playing, you know, all this, you know, Wynton Kelly stuff on the piano and then go to the organ and play like Jimmy Smith. And it's like, man, you know, how do you do that? You know, 
And so between between Uncle Howard, my dad, going to school every day with Joey, and being around all of these great musicians in the city of Philadelphia, jazz seemed the most interesting. It seemed the most personal. Like, you truly knew kind of who a person was through the way they played. Like, if you go hear a funk band, the drummer had to keep the same groove all the time. Yeah. And you're kind of following the directions of the band leader, you know. But in jazz, you get 10 drummers to play time. They all play time 10 different ways. And you're learning who they are from that. You're learning who they are from that. My brother-in-law is a a jazz musician, um, and he doesn't talk a lot. I mean, he talks talks a lot to me, but he's, you know. But sometimes when I watch him play, I'll go, that's you. That's That's who you are. That's That's right. You're talking to me right now. That's as, what you're playing right now is as you as having a conversation. And that's what I love about jazz. When you stop trying to figure out jazz and you just hear it as the person talking to you, it changes the genre entirely. More Christian McBride in just a minute, including a great story about meeting Rosa Parks. And then one of the candidates for Songwriter of the Year in Canada, Tate McRae, will be here. More Q coming up after this. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. God is not merely interested in the freedom of black men, brown men, white men, or yellow men. But God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race. The social issues of any time in our history has always been addressed in the music. And, and that's not just jazz. That's all black music. Keep that in your mind. The social issues have always been addressed through the music. My name is Tom Power. You're listening to Q. And you're hearing some of my conversation with the great jazz bassist Christian McBride, one of the greatest living jazz musicians in the world. The reason we were talking to him in the first place is because he was performing some music from this piece you're listening to right now. It's called The Movement Revisited, A Musical Portrait of Four Icons. Those four icons are Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, and Muhammad Ali. And the piece has just been released on vinyl, so that's why he was here. And I wanted to talk to him a little bit about this piece. And that ended up leading to a bigger conversation about what you just heard. The power of jazz, the power of music, the power of black music to talk about social issues. And we taped this interview... I mean, maybe a week before, a few days before, we learned about the death of the great American jazz saxophonist Wayne Shorter. So now, when I listen back to this conversation and Wayne's name comes up, uh, it, it's it's meaningful to me. Here's more of my conversation with Christian McBride. 
I, I received a commission from the Portland Arts Society in, in Maine, not Oregon. And uh, they simply asked, you know, we want you to write a piece, an extended work uh, for some black history programming that we're doing. Just thinking of the content of the piece, you know, I didn't know, like, do I want to write a piece of music about a particular moment or a, a period or a person or persons? You know, I, I mean, I was only 26. So, you know, I did the best I could, and uh, I said, well, let me whittle it down to four people who whose legacies mean a lot to me. And it was those those four that are in the piece. You met Rosa Parks, right? I did. I played a gig with the third Marcellus brother, Delphio, the trombonist. Uh, we played the National Black Caucus in Washington, D.C. in 1987, and Rosa Parks sat right in the front and watched us. And, uh, man, that was that was powerful. So we, we met her and uh, just the kindest, most gentle woman, you know, yeah. just her presence, man. I also had a chance to meet Muhammad Ali. Did you? Yes. And, man, the closer I got to him, his, his energy was so otherworldly. I mean, it was like the closer I got to him, it was like the energy, it was like a force field, you know, just like, yeah. like, it's like, man, it's like, I'm trying to walk to him, but I can't. <laughs> was was, was he unwell at the time? Was that when he? Yeah, this was, uh, this was at the grand opening of the, the Ali Center in Louisville, Kentucky. Right. And he was there. Wow. Wow. What it would have been like to meet him. And oh, see him. man. In terms of what was inspiring this piece or what you heard or what you wanted to get out through this piece in any eight. Anything feel different now when you're performing? Oh, yeah. Extra musically, I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, big time. Well, I I think of the way that piece sounded or the way I sort of remember it in 1998, and I think about it the way it felt when I rewrote it in 2008. So, yeah, 10 years apart. And you probably know the story about how the fifth movement came about because – so we played the 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 what I call the new and improved movement revisited in uh the summer of 2008 at Walt Disney Concert Hall and uh, it it was it was great it was it was we had a really wonderful experience then 5 months later Barack Obama is elected the 44th president of the United States while we breathe we hope and where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Thank you. God bless you. And may God bless the United States of America. And uh, the Detroit Jazz Festival booked the movement revisited. And Terry Pontremoli, who was the director at that time, she says, how about if we uh, give you a little small commission to expand the piece? Now, she did not specifically say, you know, write it for Obama. But, you know, I started kind of reading in between the lines. So uh, sometimes it gets mistaken that the fifth and final movement is for Obama. Mm -hmm. It's not for Obama. Mm -hmm. It's for what happened the night he was elected 
president. And so the name of the, the, na- the name of the fifth and final movement is Apotheosis, November 4th, 2008. Apotheosis means turning. It's sort of like the, the apex. You yeah. know, it's like something happens and then something great, the, the pinnacle. So, you know? so the, 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 these, these um, civil rights leaders had done all this incredible work. You got it. And then the pinnacle of that you is, got look, it. the 44th president of the United States is, is a black man. You got it. Reaffirm that fundamental truth. That out of many we are one. That while we breathe, we hope. And where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. 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 Is there something, maybe this is a good way to close things off. There's something about the music that has been able to express social movements as well, Mm -hmm. especially, of course, given the origins of the music, Mm -hmm. black liberation movements, black social justice movements, black civil rights movements. In addition to personal expression, is there something about the music that lends itself well to that that sort of expression? Yes. And and that's not just jazz. That's all black music. That's gospel music. That's uh, blues. That's black, you know, folk music, whatever you want to call it, because the social issues of any time in our history has always been addressed in the music. So it's weird how the narrative of black music in conjunction with social movements kind of get put together. I find most pundits who I who I see, they kind of don't go much further behind Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Like somehow that's the pinnacle yeah. of someone capturing the black experience in one album. And while I agree that that is a perfect album, yeah. there's no, no question about that. That album is almost late in terms of addressing social issues. You go back and you listen to Sonny Rollins, yeah. uh, the Freedom Suite. That was made in what 1957? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Max Roach, Freedom Now. Can't conceive it, can't believe it, but that's what they say. Slave no longer, slave no longer. This is Freedom Day. Freedom Day. Duke Ellington composed Black, Brown, and Beige in, I believe, 1943. When, when he played that piece, when he debuted that piece in front of an all-white audience at Carnegie Hall, yeah, he announced to the audience, he says, uh, Black, Brown, and Beige is about the Negro experience in America. Yeah. And, like, now, you know, Duke would be called woke for doing that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you can trace the history of black music being one and the same with uh, – 
what we see in the streets or, or what we feel about what we're uh, experiencing, you know. But by the same token, Questlove said something that, oh, man, it, it, it shook me up. It was so awesome. I, I'm, I'm so paraphrasing, but it was something like, uh, as black artists, people expect us only to write about the black experience. Yeah, like, yeah. we can't create just to create. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so when you see people like a Prince, you know, or a Wayne Shorter, who don't always write about the black experience, but they, they have such vivid imagination, they write about something that we can't quite, we don't really know what that is. But it's amazing. Duke Ellington was like that as well, you know. So um, I think that the, the black experience the human experience in terms of the music, you should not feel obligated to always write from a place of pain. Yeah. You know, you should be obligated to write exactly what you feel. If your experience is different from, and, and it is because we all have different experiences, you should write that Yeah, and, and be okay with that. There doesn't need to be a lane for you to feel. No, not at all. Man, I could talk to you about music forever. Thanks for coming in. Man, thanks for having me. This is fun. I, if, if I didn't have rehearsal in, in an hour, I'd stay here with you some more. Let's cancel it. Come on, we'll hang out. <laughs> they know it. They're, they're, you know, they should know it. <laughs> what, you, what, would you, what would James Brown do? That's my question. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> It's a little bit of East Broadway rundown from Christian McBride and his new John Quartet. Uh, Christian McBride's new album, The Movement Revisited Suite, has just been released on vinyl, and it was a joy to chat with Christian McBride, one of the greatest jazz musicians of our time. Uh, before we keep going with the show, I, I want to play you something I'm really excited about. Katie Lang one of Canada's greatest singers, I'll say one of the most important artists we've ever produced in Canada, is finally being honored with one of the highest honors an artist can receive in Canada, which is the Governor General's Performing Arts Award. And that's always a good excuse to talk to someone not about their new record, but about their entire life. So later this month, you're going to hear my conversation with Katie Lang, but I couldn't wait. I wanted to play a little bit of it now. A little bit about the song that won her a Grammy in 1989, a little bit about her duet with the iconic Roy Orbison. Take a listen to this. I thought that I was over you But it's true, so true Oof, that boy was full of emotion. Like, he was just all of, you know, when he sang, it just, you couldn't help. You couldn't, couldn't stop the hairs on your arm from standing ah, he was just so ethereal and, and mysterious um, very very quiet um, but but it, but um, warm and and um, open it, 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 it very elusive 
but an incredible experience. I, I've told this many times when we were recording it that in Vancouver, we leaned in when we were rehearsing it, or maybe we were taking an actual truck, I don't know. But we leaned in to share a microphone and our cheeks touched and it was so electric. And his skin was so soft and his voice was so powerful. It was just all these like contrasting emotions. It was incredible. I love a Roy Orbison story so much, especially from Katie Lang. You can hear my conversation with Katie on March 15th. So, you know, put that in your calendars. Juno Awards are coming up on March 13th. The Juno Awards are like the Canadian Grammys. So we wanted to introduce you to the songwriters nominated for Songwriter of the Year. And we'll start things out with Tate McRae from Calgary. She has a pretty amazing story. When she was 12, she was on So You Think You Can Dance. She has a lot of success on YouTube. Now she's 19. She's a recording artist with billions of streams. She's written songs for the likes of Billie Eilish. She's one of the biggest artists on TikTok. So you can see her there unless you work for the government. And she's nominated for a bunch of Junos, including Songwriter of the Year, Single of the Year, and Pop Album of the Year. I want to share one of her songs with you from her debut album, I Used to Think I Could Fly. But why don't we get Tate to set it up for you? Hey, this is Tate McRae, and you're about to hear my song, She's All I Want to Be. But first, I'm going to break it down a bit. I moved up to L.A. when I was 17, turning 18, so very young. Finished high school early. I feel like life was moving at a really fast pace, and I was going through a million different identity crises at the time. And I didn't really know who I was yet, and I got thrown into a whole other world of people and figuring out who my new friends are and went through a dip where I just had no idea where I was at in life. So I, I think that... You know, this song was stemmed from just nonstop comparison on the internet and not feeling great about myself. Yeah, I um, honestly just had this uh, one line that was, uh, she's all I want to be so bad, how could I ever compete with that? And I just had that written in my notes. And I looked at that and I was just sitting in the studio with Greg Kirsten. He was playing these like really sad piano chords. And I was just in the back of the room like with my computer typing away. And I started just playing around this idea of the feelings of comparing yourself to another girl when you're in a relationship. And uh, the song kind of flowed out pretty fast. This song started as a ballad and then ended up being like the most high energy, fun song to sing on tour. Like the first initial version of the song is so vastly different, very piano heavy, just my voice and a piano. And I was like, okay, something's missing. I think the vibe of this song is, is wrong. And so I was like, is there any way you could completely flip this song around and 
Greg Kirsten. Totally switched the vibe. Stupid boy making me so sad. Didn't think you could change this fast. She's got everything. I feel like it just, you know, made the song have like an alternate meaning because now it was this anthem. It wasn't as depressing to me to listen to. It was a little bit more had the refer the reverse effect on my brain where I was like, why do I keep comparing myself to all these people and um, completely switch the meaning for me. I don't like confrontation. I don't like talking about things. I don't like talking about my problems. It's always just resulted in me going to my songwriting to talk about everything that I don't want to say out loud. She's got everything that I don't have and she's all I want to be, all I want to be so bad. Oh, I think that lyric is just really special because it's very truthful to how, how I was feeling is just literally not wanting to be yourself at all. When you're at a point in your life where you feel like you're kind of at rock bottom and you feel like you have no instincts to follow and you feel so mentally lost, everything I was writing was like super vulnerable and super depressing. And I, there was nothing I could do about that. It's just the way that I felt and the, the way I was living at that point in time. Usually never cry at all. I would say I'm pretty tough. But it's been a couple weeks now. My mentality was just really shaky last year and the year before. And I feel like I'm a lot more sure of myself now as a person and an artist. And so, you know, now I look at myself and I, you know, feel proud to be who I am and my personality. And back then I just didn't want to be in my body and didn't want to be in my mind. Jealousy is such a a horrible feeling like it is my least favorite feeling to feel because you just feel so uncertain about yourself and um it was an uncomfortable thing to talk about but I think it's important for me to realize that you know I don't just make music for myself I make music for people to feel like I'm saying the words that they can't say and I think that's also really important hey this is Tate McRae take a listen to she's all I want to be you want the girl with the small waist and the perfect smile. Someone who's out every weekday in her dad's new car. You tell me I shouldn't stress out, say it's not that hard. But I just got a feeling this will leave an ugly scar. If you say she's not. Big song, big radio hit. And I love when this occasionally happens that a big radio hit 
is also just a really, really good song. That's uh, Tate McRae and She's All I Want to Be. It's nominated for Single of the Year at this year's Junos. Tate's up for Songwriter of the Year. Uh, the Junos are happening March 13th in Edmonton, Alberta. Q is going to be there this year at March 12th at the Winspear Center. I'll be doing an onstage interview with Simu Liu. For tickets, go to junoawards.ca. Uh, that's it for us today. Uh, I want to let you know the people who make this show possible uh, week after week. The producers of Q are Ben Edwards, Vanessa Greco, Sarah Melton, Vanessa Nigro, Mitch Pollack, Catherine Stockhausen, and Jennifer Warren. Matthew Murphy is our director. Caitlin Swan is our podcast producer. Our digital team is Amelia Ekbal, Shuli Grossman-Gray, and Vivian Rashad. Our engineer is Sam Hashmi. The senior producer of the show is Lise Hossein. And McKeegan is the executive producer of Q. My name's Tom Power. I host the thing. If you want to get in touch, Q at cbc.ca is the best way to do that. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.